Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And let's get going. So uh, we are joined today with by Eden Lepucky. She is the best-selling author of the novels California and Women Number Seventeen. Woman Number Seventeen. Uh, her work has been published in the Los Angeles Times, Esquire, McSweeney's, and the New York Times, among others. She is the creator of the popular Instagram Mothers Before, and she will be editing a book inspired by the project to be published by Abrams Press in 2020. Uh, she is the co-host of a podcast called Mom Rage. Um, and the author of tonight's book is Chrissy Van Meter. Uh, yeah, there we go. That's what I was waiting for. Uh, Chrissy Van Meter grew up in Southern California. Her writing has appeared in Vice, Bustle, Guernica, and Catapult. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the New School uh, and lives in Los Angeles. Please welcome Eden Lepucky and Chrissy Van Meter. Maybe. Hello? I always do that. Hello? <laughs> so how are we going to do this? I feel well, like we're I guess I could duo. start by, by reading, but as you can tell, I sound uh, a little gross. I've sort of lost my... It's kind of smoky, sexy. Maybe just imagine me like crying or something. Raspy, yeah. yeah, sexy. Um, yeah, so I thought I'd read just a really short piece from, from the book. Um, So the book sort of, I think, encapsulates <laughs> a woman's entire life. And in the middle of the book, there's a marriage. And um, I want to read a section from there because it's short. And it's also about love, which I like. So this is called Whale Fall. <clears throat> Question. What happens when something dies? In the very beginning, when I'm showing him the island, I tell Liam I'm a mess. I tell him I don't smoke, and then I smoke a cigarette, and later a joint right in front of him, and so he does too. In that beginning, I do most of the talking, because I fear if there is any silence, any space between, he'll leave. I tell him I have been abandoned. He says he's been left too. I say that my father is dead, that my life isn't complicated, but it isn't easy. He asks for another cigarette. I can't remember if I was being myself, but then who else could I have been? Because it all came out so fast and there was no turning back. I pretend that I am at ease and I know I'm good at telling half-hearted jokes. I think that of laying it all out, the markings on my heart will make it easier for us later, if there will be a later, that if I say all the bad things up front, I won't ever have to say them again. We are both silent even when I'm loud terrified to say things we don't want to hear ourselves, terrified that if we say it once, everything will open up, will be cracked apart, and what if there is no way to seal it all back up? We say this without saying it. I say all the things that don't matter. I tell the history of the sea. I take him to the lighthouse because I imagine that is what a romantic person would do, but it's cold and wet there, and he slips and smacks his tailbone at the top of the stone steps. 
I try to help him to his feet and he lets me and I pull him up with my hands and I wonder if I have ever let anyone help me. We sit on a bench on a windy bluff and we see the whales migrating south. And in my entire life on that island, I had never seen a whale from there. I want to tell him that it's a myth that it's so easy to see whales passing here, even though that's everything we tell the tourists. He finally starts talking about nothing and everything, about the next boat, so that I can't decide if the distant blowing of the whale matters like I thought it would. He asks if he can hold my hand, and when our fingers lock, there's a rush, and I can't tell what's real. He tells me he wants to see me again and again. I go home that night, and I cry and I cry. So we are silent for most of our first year, talking only about paint colors, future vacations. I know of his mother's broken heart and his dad who's left him for the South Seas and later for death, and his brothers who fear the ocean. He knows of my mother, of Mary, then Tommy, and I try to tell him about my father, but we never really say what any of it means to us. He's easy to love because he's the kind of person who takes care of things, who doesn't tell me to quit smoking. We'll just do the laundry if it needs to be done. Later, he reveals that before me, he felt alone. And so it's enough for me to say I'll marry him. He's slow to tell me what he feels, but sometimes I know it when I look at the top of his hands because there is regret and the tinges of darkness. They are bruised, they are salt-crusted, they are always nicked. He won't treat them, and instead his hands are covered in bubbles of brown scabs, and he just lets them heal on their own. Then little skinless white scars appears until the, the sun has covered them again. I keep trying with all the talking at him, telling him things I want because for the first time someone is asking. At first it's so easy to tell him I love him. At first it's never easy to tell him why. When he moves into my bungalow, I watch him sleep and I make a list of the reasons I love him. And most of them are petty, but it's that for once I feel like I am alive to feel the extraordinary weight of joy. I am too afraid to ask him if he feels this too. Before we marry, we must talk about things like what kind of car we will buy, where we will live, if we should get a dog. But it must have only been me talking. We decide that he will take months-long charters out to sea because it's what he wants and knows. And we aren't sure if we could do this any other way. We don't want to be alone. We say that if he meets a woman or I find a man, it won't mean anything. It won't break us. But we promise to be loyal to us on this island. Say that nothing will ruin us. At night, I try to t keep him awake until we are exhausted, and I ask him for a hundred ways to tell me we'll do whatever it takes to stay in love. A scab tugs on the sheet. Before he leaves one last time before our wedding, we hike back up to the lighthouse to clean the thick lenses that protect the lamps. He reminds me of the time he slipped. He tells me he knew he already loved me then. Then the lights are brighter. He tells me that when he's away, he feels gone. The distance, he said, reminds him of the distance between all things, and he fears he will push me away. I tell him I fear the same thing. We wonder if our same fears will make us last forever. Wonder who will die first, we say. So if we die, maybe we are not really dead. He tells me he'll be back again and again, and that the next time he returns, we'll get married on the beach, even if we are different people by then even if there is rain or something worse. He says he'll love every adaptation of me. We will build around us. The carcass of a whale falls slowly to the ocean floor and forms complex localized ecosystems after death. 
It will sustain deep sea organisms for decades, maybe forever. Scientists call this a whale fall. Nicely done. Um, I'm asking the questions, and then you guys get a turn. So prepare your questions now. Um, I want to first talk about the setting of the book oh, yeah. before we get into I want. I have a lot of questions. Um, so for those of you who haven't read it, it takes place on Winter Island, which is a fictional island in Southern California. Um, but it's such a distinct sense of place and is probably my favorite element of the book and mm -hmm. I liked a lot of things about the book. Mm -hmm. But like there's like these like it starts with this whale that's been beached, right? Like dying whale. So it's like the stink of dying whale. Um, but then there's also like the salt smells mm -hmm. and the locals versus the tourists that come and this area that's like an abandoned former marine biology center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so evocative and wonderful. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about coming up with this setting and what's it based on? Yeah. How did it create the world? Did it come later? Did it come first? Yeah, I think, um, well, so I grew up with my dad spending a lot of time on the Balboa Peninsula, which is in Newport Beach. And the peninsula, right, is covered or surrounded by water on three sides. And so, <clears throat> like quite literally, um, it was a place full of like tourists and crazy people and party people, but then also people that like lived there full full time. Um, but like once you got like a, a parking spot there, right? Like you can't ever leave. Like that's your parking <laughs> spot for like maybe ever. Um, so it was something that's always sort of been in my mind, and I spent so much time there with people very much like these kinds of people. Um, but a lot of people have asked, especially not in California, they're like, "Oh, I looked up Winter Island and I can't find it on like the Channel Islands." I'm like. No, I made it up. It's, like, definitely not yeah. real. Um, but definitely, I mean, I'm, you know, third generation Southern Californian, and it's just, like, I feel like, right, I mean, you're Californian, too, so it's, like, kind of just part of, like, who I am, this kind of, like, culture and this idea of, like, tourism versus people who are sort of from here. Um, but I sort of imagine this place as, like, places where, that I love, like, Big Sur meets, like, La Jolla. There's, like, Malibu. There's, like, Newport Beach, right? It's just this, like, hodgepodge of every, like, great sort of California place. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I always knew that was going to be the setting, but as I kept building this world and like the crazy weather and stuff, it became more clear, right? That it was going to have to be this like almost, almost magical realism mm -hmm. kind of place. Yeah. Know? It's really interesting because I feel like it really is. It's funny that people would Google it because I think it's, yeah. it really is right on the boundary of real mm -hmm. and magical. Well, there is a real winter island, which I did not know on the East coast. Oh, Hey now. Everyone's like, you're from the East coast. I was like, what's happening? No. <laughs> yeah. It's like off Massachusetts or something. Oh, interesting. So whoops. Um, but that, that's something I really love. Like there's a, there's a whole chapter with her, like there's a there's a it's called the tsunami yeah, chapter yeah, yeah. and there's like a big storm and she and her dad waited out on the, in this mansion with these former Playboy bunnies right mm -hmm. um, and former Dodgers yeah and former Dodgers mm -hmm. and it has this sort of like this isn't real but it is real quality that I think California itself mm -hmm. engenders mm -hmm. something like that yeah. um, tell me about the characters in the book and where they come from so we have. Evie Evangeline, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then we have her... Yeah, they're not named. So there's the dad. So there's kind of like these sort of um, shitty parents. There's a dad and a mom, and they're just real shitty. The mom sort of always... But they're differently shitty. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and there's also some redeeming qualities about them. I mean, one thing I was interested in thinking about for myself was like, what does it mean to write like an empathetic character? 
And, you know, in, in the case of, of this book, that the father is sort of like a, a weed dealer. People keep saying drug dealer, but he dealed weed. He dealt weed. Like, he wasn't like a heroin, you know, dealer. <laughs> just saying. Um, but, you know, Just make it sound a lot heavier. Yeah, it's just weed. <laughs> um, but I, I think, like, you know, one thing that I was interested in is you can be, you know, an addict or, you, you know, you're still many other things. You're still redeeming things about you. You're still a person. So even though these are shitty parents... You know, they, in shitty in different ways, um, they have sort of these redeeming, I think, qualities about them. Yeah, definitely. You know, throughout the book. Yeah. Or at least I hope. No, they definitely <laughs> do. Um, I mean, it's interesting, too, you've written two, pa- these parents have such um, charisma, I guess I would say, where you mm. they're magnetic, so you can understand why everyone on the island knows her dad, besides yeah. the fact that he has the best weed on the island. Right. Um, but he can tell these stories, and the mother, she has she has this kind of, gravity of her own because she kind of sweeps in and visits in the way that children whose moms or dads aren't around and yeah. then they come around once yeah, a year and totally. suddenly it's like the god has arrived but you can as the reader I think you feel that pull towards mm-hmm. them as well yeah I think too like uh this kind of culture of of people or these kinds of parents right like their survival especially the father is based on that kind of charisma where it's not really like lying but like his personality is part of what you know, makes them money and, mm-hmm. and makes their lives sort of churn and, and keep going. And I think um, as a kid, you know, you kind of, like you just said, when a parent comes home or something, right, you're, you're absorbing these kinds of personalities for better or for worse, right? It's like kind of informing who you might become. And I think that's something I was really interested in doing is like how do our, you know, whether your childhood was traumatic or not, there's certainly some weird things that probably happened, right? Whatever your parents are or not. And so... This idea of these kinds of parents, how does it inform Evie as an adult? Like, can mm-hmm. she can she love? Is she going to be capable of these things when mm-hmm. she's sort of learned to sort of be charismatic when she needs to be or see these people sort of white lying or lying their way through through life? Yeah. You know, those were kind of the big questions. I don't know if I really answer them, but those are sort of how I started out with these kinds of big questions about these kinds of parents. It's like, how do they fuck you up? Yeah. But also, like, in some ways, right, they teach you a lot of real things about the world. Yeah, what did they give you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about the structure of the book, because I think it's really one of the most interesting elements of mm. the book and a very kind of fascinating book where it's not just a chronological story of her childhood into adulthood, right. meeting Liam, who becomes her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, will you talk about how it's how it's yeah. told and why it's told like that? So um, when I first started writing this, I was really just writing a lot of the childhood memories. A lot of them were sort of emotionally true for me anyway, and I was kind of playing with that, and it felt like a linear story. But then I was thinking it had to be bigger. There needed to be sort of a representation of someone's whole life. Like, how do you do that? And so I was really interested in time and memory and, and grief specifically. And you know, in my experience in grief, I mean, even when, like, I still think about my, like, dead dog all the time, like, in all aspects of grief, like, you know, we're sort of taught this, like, these steps we take, and then you sort of level off, um, where, to me, it's never felt that way, so I was thinking of sort of these ebbs and flows of time, and so when I started structuring the book, um, actually, there's this table of contents here, if you flip it on its side, it sort of mirrors a, a title chart, the way it would sort of sort of look if you were to open a Tide book. Um, and I was thinking so much about that with, like, memory and grief. And 
Um, nothing's really linear. I mean, time, right? That's crazy talk. It's a flat circle. Yeah. Wow. So I hear. So scary, <laughs> but like kind of is. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was kind of structuring it in this way of trying to feel the way sort of grief and memory feels. And mm. I've, it's so funny. A lot of people, you're either like on board with this or it's like really jarring and confusing to people. Mm. And they're like, it made me feel uncomfortable. I'm like, yes, exactly. Like, that's how I think memory feels and grief feels and sort of, you know, piecing yeah. together and patching together your own life, especially childhood, right? And I, as you get older, those childhood memories become even, like, more clear. So when I was kind of structuring it, I knew it couldn't just be a, you know, beginning, middle, and end. It sort of had to represent, like, this general feeling that, like, I at least feel of, yeah. like, grief and memory and confusion of time and did you always want to have because there are these kind of anchoring mm. no pun intended thank you <laughs> thank you um keep it up like i'm here all night ladies and gentlemen um you know i have to go like this but it's kind of one weekend before her wedding yeah and then some of it kind of swings back towards her childhood and then it swings forward and then when you go back to the weekend you have information that she doesn't have in the present which is kind of cool yeah did you have all these parts and then at the end you were doing that Jenny, off, when the profile yeah, yeah, Jenny Ofo, yeah. you see that she has this like poster board with these little pieces of text and she's rearranged them or cut them. Did you have something <clears throat> like that or did it come together earlier than that? Well, it's interesting you even bring up Jenny Ophel about this because um, she read an early draft of this at well, Tin hello. House and when it was still kind of linear. And I was like, I hate this. Like, this doesn't make sense. And she basically said, you should take a hammer to this. <laughs> like, those were her words. And I was like, oh, well, I'll never sell it, you know. And she's like, you should just write whatever the fuck you want to write. And um, I think I had, like, car chases in here, like, all these, like, plot things, explosions. <laughs> I don't know. I tend to do that where I'm, like, I freak out and think it should be, like, plot-driven. Um, but that was kind of a turning point for me to think about it in terms of just, like, how I really wanted it to be. But I've always been a writer like that. Like, I, I don't know if you do this. I really do cut up everything, mm-hmm. and my living room floor becomes this, like, disgusting mess of like little snippets everywhere and so I think I think the structure overall I I ended up writing these all in pieces and it took me like a while of just like thinking and living and cutting it up on the floor of really deciding what I was even doing right because I don't know if it's like that for you but like do you outline no yeah I don't either I don't outline but I always write in order oh you do but I'm neurotic oh I envy you that's amazing (laughs) yeah I can't seem I've I've tried that I tell myself like whenever I start a project, like, all right, I'm just going to try that. But immediately I start going in this yeah. zone. Well, I have a thing where I'm always say, honor your process. Like you can't change the person, the writer yeah. that, I mean, you can obviously make some changes, yeah. but it's like your body type. You yeah. can exercise a lot, but yeah. you got to love your body. You're still you. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, I like that. Yeah. So I think, I think with the structure, like for me, when I write, like it takes me a while to understand like what my subconscious is even doing. Mm-hmm. So like. I, th- I think, and you might agree with this too, like uh, the actual physical writing part never takes that long. For me, it's like the thinking part mm. because I feel like I could write a manuscript like every six weeks if I had to, but it would just be total shit because it wouldn't make sense in terms of like trying to make something bigger or or at least for me to, to make sense. Um, so I think there was like a year where I did no writing and I was just thinking, thinking yeah. and moving things around. And the parts that are, the, like the part that you read, that's the question and it has like the yeah. mer- section to a the marine whales. mammal. Mm-hmm. Um, how did those come in? So those came, I think, uh, last. They're, so most of them, actually almost all of them are in the second person. And um, 
they kind of feel like interludes a bit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and it because the structure is kind of jarring, as Goodreads would say, <laughs> um, you know, I think I needed something sort of like to break up the, the, the pace there and mm-hmm. to make it sort of make sense. And so <clears throat> the whales feel very much like Evie talking to herself in that second person. Yeah. There's sort of like a teaching moment. She's a marine researcher and she sort of lectures and things. And so it's sort of a moment for her to say it's a test question or something, mm-hmm. right? Or you're teaching, you have this idea on the board and, you know, there's a scientific answer, but she's really giving that sort of emotional update, the yeah. emotional sort of interlude that I think kind of hopefully leads into the, the next sort of sections. Yeah. Are you into whales? Now I am. No, I've always been into <laughs> whales, yeah. I had to do a lot of research. <clears throat> I did. I had um, a man in Portland uh, who I think at the reading just wandered in, like didn't know this book, just was like, look, people, and sat down. Raised his hand and was like, can you just talk about whales? And I was like, sure. Did you get, we gave a lecture on whales? I should have, but I did do a lot of research. Um, and I, I, if you ever want to get stuck on a YouTube sort of suck hole, uh, all the Jacques Cousteau videos are on YouTube. And it is just the best, like if you just want to waste some time, um, there's like so many great, Jacques Cousteau YouTube mm. videos. So that's kind of where I started. And then, you know, basic ass shit like library books. And yeah. Have you read um, Flash Count Diary? <clears throat> yes. Such a good book. Yes. She's that's a book amazing. about menopause and has a lot about whales also. She was my professor at the new school. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, a lot about whales, yeah. Darcy Steinke. Darcy Steinke. It's, a, it's like she had a, she was going through menopause and having a really hard time with it. So it's kind of like an exploration, all these different mm-hmm. ways of like the history of menopause, her own personal relationship to her body. Whales are the only, one of the only post-reproductive mammals. Is that what's the Yeah. Job? Well, they're, um, they're basically human. So yeah, yeah but better. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. like way better humans yeah. and amazing mothers. Yeah. So mm-hmm. some of them like 250 yeah. years. It's yeah. amazing. But it's a great book. Also very slender. Even yeah. More slender than this I know. One. Um, so Jenny, how do you say her? Ophil? How do you Ophil, say her? Ophil? Yeah. Um, is one of your influences, it sounds like. Yeah. Who else is an influence of you for this book in particular or mm. maybe just in general? So, um, I really love As I Lay Dying, which is not really like this book, but the structure itself, it's Faulkner, um, is sort of all these different sort of points of views. And it's, what I love about that book is there's, um, it's one story, it's one event happening with like multiple sort of visions about it and, and tales about it and, and narrations about it. So I kind of, that book for me always feels like it's given me this sort of freedom to say, yeah, I want to write however I want to write and I probably won't ever write in a, maybe someday, in a plot-driven sort of narrative yeah. way. Yeah. Um, I was also read, I also read Pale Fire a lot. I know, really like classic kind of boring stuff, but again, another like, sort of narrator within a narrator. That's a Nabokov book. Yeah. has a poem and then a fictional writer. Right, it's like analyzing a hundred-page poem. poem. Yeah. Yeah, so it was just, I think for me, it's always more about who's doing weird things with structure mm-hmm. or whatever they want with structure. Yeah. Um, because, again, I, I haven't figured out a way yet to tell, like, a really cool, I mean, this is my first book, but some really cool plot-driven. I mean, there's obviously plot in here, yeah. but um, I would like to try it. But, yeah, I was more looking in sort of, like, form structure stuff. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Maybe you've already answered this, but I just was talking to my friend Katie DiCibeto, who's another writer in LA, and she was just talking about her anti-influences, mm. which were all the things she was working against in her current book. And I was like, I love That's this great. idea. So now I want to ask everyone, who are your anti-influences? Um, Not to like talk shit, but let's get to it. I guess, well, I'm really bad at like genre fiction. Like I keep saying that, but like... Um, I, I don't really read a lot of sort of plot-driven books. So it's like most books. So I end up reading a lot of like indie books. So I can't even, I think because I don't read them, I can't even yeah. like off the top of my head. Yeah. I don't know. Can you think of some for me? <laughs> it's interesting. It's just an interesting question. It was like, but now, think about now graduate now school. About my that. friend Madeline That's and I had a se- each had a secret nemesis, which I think Roxane Gay has a nemesis too. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll be her. Maybe I'm her nemesis. Oh, maybe one of you is Roxane Gay's nemesis. <laughs> but we used to love having a nemesis, which was like some random person schmo mm. in the program that we just decided that we hated oh my god it was like very <laughs> it was bracing but the uh, katie was talking about her anti anti i like that idea it wasn't like putting hate out mm-hmm. into the world it was more like this is what this does and my book is kind of in conflict with that mm-hmm. in terms of what i want to do aesthetically yeah, yeah. or how i want to further the culture yeah. Which I thought was interesting. I never thought of it. I don't I know what like the answer would my even own be for myself. List of that now that you've said that. I'm gonna yeah. like go home and think on that. Yeah. I love that idea. Or it can't even be like a yin and yang thing. We can mm-hmm. work together. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of books that have just come out too that I haven't had the chance to read. Yeah. Right. It is weird to publish. We were just talking about the book books that sort of come out on your your, your book graduating birthday. class. And yeah, and I haven't you don't I don't haven't yet had a lot of time to read them. But um yeah, I do think people love plot driven they're easier to read yeah I don't know if um uh yeah I don't know of any off the top of my head but I'm gonna make a list of those for myself sometimes when I teach plot I teach it as a plot of land Ooh. so your book has that yes there you go. Mm. I'm gonna take where were you all tour <laughs> hey great um are there any questions from you all beautiful people Dina yeah. Drewis I also think this question is tied to like when do you know the book is done too, right? Because they're kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the whale thing, when it, so there, there used to be in here, uh, like I had 20 pages about um, a fish that glows in the dark, 20 pages. There's one line in there now about it, just one. You've probably missed it. Um, but I had 20 pages of it, and my editor was like, what are we going to do with this? Like, <laughs> no one cares. It started becoming like Moby Dick in sections, where I was just like explaining like periods of whales and stuff. And she's like, this has nothing to do with your overall thing. So I think when I started coming back to the same stuff, like I'd start reading things, and then I'd be like, I already knew this fact, right? I was like, okay, I've done enough. Like, I've gotten the base of it. Plus, it's all just like metaphor. So, I mean... Technically, I could have made it all up, and it would have still done a lot of the same thing. So I, th- I do think some of the research, though, because I did a lot of it after I wrote some of this, especially the, like, the childhood section. section. Um, but I think a lot of it was a distraction, too, because I was like not sure about the structure, and I was just sort of thinking on it, and I kept thinking, like, I need all these metaphors. There's so many in the sea. Like, I need all of these. So um, I think when my editor was finally like, why is there 20 pages about a... F- I had one with like a special fish with a weird tooth related nothing to the book, but I was like, it needs to be in there. Um, so that's when I kind of just gave up on the whales and started focusing on like the emotional weight of it. Um, 
I think the same could be said for the book too. When you're writing a book and you know, you never know, you could keep writing it forever, right? Like I could rewrite this completely as a different book. Um, but I think for me, there was a moment of just when I kept kind of rewriting the same thing over and over, I was like, all right, it's here. I don't need to keep like hammering it home, you know? But I do love whales. Yes. Um, so the first thing I wrote was Tsunami, <clears throat> excuse me, which was, uh, it's the first childhood memory in the book. And I wrote that a friend commissioned a short story uh, from me. And I was thinking a lot about my own dad and at the time my own grief after my dad had passed away. And I was thinking about Newport and where I spent all this time with him. And um, so I wrote it as a short story. And so that's a memory of the dad and the daughter when she's the youngest and there's a tsunami coming on the island and it's like this kind of um, really visceral, weird memory of, of this tsunami coming. So that was the first thing I wrote and I sent it to the friend to publish and she said, hey, I think you should make this longer. Like, this is pretty cool. So here we are. So the, <laughs> that's kind of where I started with the, the childhood stuff, which is why originally I thought this would be totally linear because I was starting with the childhood and thought, you know, I would sort of keep going and... But yeah, so the, the, the childhood memories were a lot of the, the pieces I started building first, and most of them stayed. Um, I did have to obviously cut some that turned into like car chases and explosions when I worried that I needed plot. <laughs> uh, those were taken out. But yeah, Tsunami was the first. Mm. Is there another question in the back? Can you talk a little bit about the process of finding your first book Yeah. So um, I was actually kind of lucky, and you could probably speak to this too because you have more books than me, but um, I waited to get an agent till I was like done, done with the book. So I cold called agents with what mostly is this manuscript. Um, I did one minor edit with my agent, and then I did really only one uh, big edit with my publisher, my editor. Um, and I know that that varies from person to person. Like some people do like years of editing with their agent or whatever, whatever. I think it just depends. Um, I think because this was my first and I was like so psycho, I like held on to it and didn't want anyone to see it, right? Um, the main thing we edited out was I had another layer of time. I had a, uh, Evie as an older woman building a boat, just building a boat, <laughs> just building a boat. <laughs> It was, like, just because it was her as an old person, and I just kept, like, adding in, and everyone was like, this is too many sort of layers of time. So besides, like, you know, the editing for clarification and making the metaphors feel real and, you know, fixing up things, I was pretty lucky I didn't have to do any, like, years of editing. Have you, do you feel that way about your stuff? Oh, mine was <coughs> totally different. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Well, I had one book, and I got an agent for it. I had an agent, and I wrote a book, and then she read the book, and she was like, I don't want to be your agent. <laughs> so then I got a new agent, and she tried to sell that book, and it never sold. So I wrote another book, Jeez. and that book sold. It was California. But I went through three very intense editing. With the publisher. With the publisher. With wow. Which I, it was, it was fine. The first, <clears throat> the first like editorial letter was like 10 pages single spaced. And I almost like, I had to, I like read it and then like slammed the computer down. Like, <gasps> but then I opened it up again. I was like, oh, that's a good point. Oh, yeah, that's totally right. Oh, she has my number. Okay. Yeah. So actually the editing process was fine. It just took a long time because I did have a lot of plot in that book. 
And so there was a yeah. lot of, and See, I feel like right. plot is something that totally. you can revise over and over again. And I feel like it almost feels bloodless in a way, but I think if the characters are there, the plot can be almost anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first book. And then the next book was l- a lot less editing. Mm-hmm. It was just like one, one, one round and then like kind of a little round. Yeah, I think that. it just depends. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. I think the plot thing's interesting too because also I found the copy editing actually to be the weirdest okay. because, because copy editing people are strange species. They're amazing. They're amazing, but their job is to find these. I've had a, I had a friend whose copy editor was like looking up phases of the moon For at sure. a certain time in a certain year, like yeah. really intense. Same. I had one, my copy editor said, precision, a porpoise. I have a line in here about a porpoise being born in like, I don't know, I don't even know what it is now, <laughs> spring or something. She's she like, said a porpoise can't be born then? Yeah. And I was like, well, she's kind of lying. She's lying to her husband, so it like, doesn't matter. It's just her yeah. trying to get out of a thing she has to do in her marriage. But, <clears throat> I mean, those were the edits. Also, I have like, remember they used to call the Great Western Forum, not the Forum, all oh. these things. And she's like, it was off by like three months. I'm like, it's fiction. Who cares? Yeah, I found the copy editing weird. And I have a lot of like, slang words in here and like drug stuff and they were like that's not a real word I'm like no shit like <laughs> can we keep it I mean you can but you can strike yeah. that whatever Stat. so that, that part takes a while yeah. that for me the copy editing I feel like took longer than that mm, interesting because with the woman building a boat I was just like let's cut it it's easy yeah. yeah I wasn't like I'm gonna try and save this when she was just like it doesn't really work I was like great delete mm. next yeah other questions yes yeah I think for me, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think part of the, I think I hope, hopefully I wouldn't act that way with the ne- next book, but I think the the fear too of like, can I sell this book, right? That was sort of on my mind since it was my first book, which is why I think I kept adding weird, weird ass plot things. Like there's like a drug chase. I should really pull those out and read them at yeah. these. Um, but I think when I started thinking about the childhood made sense. It was very easy to write. A lot of it's based on things that I know very well. And when I started thinking about Evangeline as an adult, and then when I started thinking about her as someone who's married and she's committed in this like life partnership, then it all started to make sense to me. It's like, how does this world and this life inform who she's going to be as a person who can love? And to me, then it was like very clear, like, oh, this is a love story. Like, this is just a woman trying to figure out how she can make love work for her and how love can last. And I think on a very human level, it's like literally everyone's question every day. And so when, when that became clear to me that it was really about a marriage and not just about a you know fucked up childhood or something, then it became really clear of how to like flesh everything else out when I was like, oh, I'm writing a love story. Like, duh. You know what I mean? Thank you, Chrissy. Um, you're going to sign books now. Mm-hmm. They're for sale at the front counter. Buy 10. Buy 10. And she will sign them all for you. Thanks for coming out, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.